We're going to begin our study in Hebrews today, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be, it's going to be rich, I hope, because Hebrews is a book that forces you to dive back into your Old Testament and, and, and to understand it better. It requires a lot of you, really, um, because while it, is a, while it is a letter, it is an epistle, uh, just like all, all the other epistles we have, it, it almost has features like it's a theological treatise, a uh, theological essay. It's, it is deep indeed. And one of the main purposes of the book of Hebrews uh, is to show us and to convince us how the new covenant in Christ is, is far better in every way than the old covenant that preceded it through Moses. And by the old covenant, I mean that the law covenant that God gave through Moses, particularly symbolized in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The, 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 the covenant that said, do this and live, uh, Leviticus 18. Uh, and this letter was apparently written to a church composed predominantly of Jews who had converted to Christianity, but who, because of pressure and even persecution coming in various forms, were being tempted to go back to their old life in Judaism. Their old life that they knew that they were comfortable with. And sure, in that day, uh, being Jewish was not easy. I mean, it meant the Roman, the Roman Empire sometimes made life hard for you. The Roman government, as a Jew, made life hard for you. But being a Christian meant that you had not only the Roman government making life hard for you, but also the Jews. And, and, and when we say the Jews made, it life, made life hard for these Christians, remember that they were... More, more than likely converts from Judaism to Christianity. And so with the, the Jews making life hard for these Christians, that often meant their own family, their own friends that they had grown up with, made it particularly hard. So the temptation to leave Christ, to leave the Christian faith, was a strong one. And this, this letter is meant to be one huge warning against turning away from Christ, but not merely a warning also, one huge motivation to stay and to persevere in Christ to the end. This letter is designed to show them that knowing Jesus Christ is, is better. And the hope that he gives is better. The life that he offers is better than anything they left in Judaism or anything else they were tempted to leave for. More than, more than worth any of the suffering that they would have to endure as a result of it. And the letter spends a great deal of time also showing that if they really understood the Judaism that they left, they really understood the Old Testament scriptures, they would have understood that it was always pointing forward to Jesus anyway. And it was the, it, he is the person that it was always leading them to. Well, let's just do a little nuts and bolts. It's not clear who wrote this letter. I mean, we don't, it's not never told in this letter who actually wrote it. Unlike all the other letters in the New Testament, you know, Paul always identifies himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, or Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. I mean, he always says at the outset he's the one who's writing this letter, or Peter, or any of the other ones for that matter. But the author of Hebrews never identifies himself, or even which specific group he's writing to. But you can read between the lines of the letter, and you can say it obviously looks like it was written to Jewish Christians tempted to leave Christianity over the centuries Several men have been suggested as possible authors, Paul being the most common one. But as we said, it doesn't seem like any of his other letters. 
Um, other, other people that have been put forward as possible authors, Luke is suggested as possibly the author, or Barnabas, possibly, or even Apollos, who's mentioned in the book of Acts. But even as early as the year 254, the early church father Origen said this about Hebrews, quote, who actually wrote the epistle, only God knows. That was the year 254. So uh, who, who, who actually wrote the epistle, only God knows. But honestly, it makes no difference who, who the human author is that penned it. It is so clearly the inspired word of God and consistent in every detail with all the rest of the scripture that there's just no question about it. And far from it, Hebrews is one of the most majestic and magisterial books in the New Testament. And it presents Jesus to us, explaining who he is and what he did for us in, in the most rich and amazing ways. And I, I just think if you, if you had to summarize the whole book of Hebrews in, in one sentence, or even in as few as three words, I would say Jesus is better. Jesus is better is the whole summary of the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus is better than anything else you might worship or live for or put your hope in. And we see that from the very opening words of the book all the way through to the end of the book. Um, some were tempted to leave, to go back to their old way, to the familiar, to the comfortable. This whole book is saying, yeah, there's plenty of warnings, but it's not just that. More than that, It's just presenting Christ to us in all His glory and all His majesty and to show all the reasons why there are to stay and to persevere. We're going to look at the opening words of the book, which are some of the richest in the book, and just consider two main points in it. So let's read it and then consider what we find. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we desire to submit all of ourselves to it. Father, give us, give us minds to understand the truth. Give us ears to hear it when we hear it. Give us eyes to see it when we see it. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth. And give us wills to obey it wherever it directs us to go, whatever it directs us to believe. Father, give us joy in knowing you through your word, I pray. This morning, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there are two main overarching points, I think, being made here in this passage, and they are these. One, Jesus is the final revelation of God. I know that's not a fancy way of saying it, but it just is what the point is. The opening words say that God has spoken, and, and, in, and in the past he's spoken a lot of different ways, but in these last days he has given his final and complete word through his Son. So 
Jesus is the final revelation of God, which leads to the second point, and that is who is Jesus, and t- talks about his deity, that he is God in human flesh. Salvation is only found in Jesus because he is God who has come in, in the flesh and, and the only possible Savior from sin. The only possible Savior from sin. So just these two points that I want us to see. So let's dive in and first of all, think about Jesus as the final revelation of God. The most prominent words of this opening verse are, God spoke. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. That's the, that's the basis of the Christian faith. Those two words are the basis of all the Christian faith. The fact that God has spoken. Scripture makes it clear that God is unknowable. God is unknowable to us unless He makes Himself known. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a great word that's used often in the Bible about that, and it's this word unsearchable. God, God Himself and His ways and His will are unsearchable. Not just unfindable, unsearchable. We don't even begin to know where and how to look for it, let alone find it. So God is shut up to us unless he makes himself known, unless he reveals himself to us. That is, unless he speaks. That's why we talk about the necessity of, revolu- of revelation. If, if God hasn't spoken to us, then all we have are our own opinions. And we don't have, as such, an an authoritative basis to believe or say anything. We are indeed arrogant if I tell someone else what is right or what is wrong or what is an ought. If all I have is my opinion and I say you should do this or that. But the foundation, fundamental belief of the Christian faith is that God has spoken to us. And He has told us all we need to know. For life and for salvation, for godliness. From the very first verses of the letter, the point is made that God has spoken to us in many different ways in the past, long ago, at many different times, many ways. Think about the Old Testament. Think about, I know it's all recorded for us in this one place in the Scriptures, but think about within those Scriptures all the variety of ways that God spoke, that God talked to us. He talked to us through events like the Exodus or the installment of a kingship in Israel. He talked to us through events like that. Or He talked to us through direct words in the prophets, Thus saith the Lord. Or He talked to us through dreams and through visions or through donkeys. You know, many different ways. But the point being made here is that The revelation of Jesus Christ is superior to all the different ways that God ever spoke before or ever will say afterwards. This past summer when we were, many of you weren't here, but if you were, you you might recall this, but we studied through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament this past summer. And I mentioned at the outset of that study why it is so important for us to give ourselves to reading the Old Testament and to being thoroughly familiar with, with the Old Testament, um, because it is as much God's Word to us as the New Testament. And, and consider just how big 
the Old Testament is compared to our New Testament. I mean, it's, it, is, uh, it is enormous compared to our... Here, here's the Old Testament, and here's the New. Just little. It just, it's, the Old Testament is so big, and there's so much there. The Old Testament is something like 60% of our Bible, maybe a little more. So if we don't ever read or study the Old Testament, we are being neglectful and ignorant of over half, almost two-thirds of all that God has said to us. And, 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 and that's the beauty of Hebrews, is it forces you to think about the Old Testament and consider what God told you there and then. One thing you'll never find the, the author of Hebrews doing is making a claim that Judaism and what the, what the Scripture said in the Old Covenant was just out and out wrong in every respect. It never says that, never, not even close. No, instead what he says is it was just incomplete. It was incomplete. It wasn't a finished product and never, never was intended, intended to be a finished product. It's just part of the story. It's just part of the truth that God revealed. And so the author of Hebrews is going to see Judaism as the buildup in the story of which Jesus is the climactic uh, uh, point in the story. It's, it's the build-up to the story without a conclusion until Jesus comes. The Old Testament is like, you could, you could put it this way, the Old Testament is like the scaffolding while the, the permanent building is being built. And, when the, and, and Christ is the permanent building. And when He comes, while the scaffolding was necessary until that time, it, it, it's not the end product. You don't leave the scaffolding up while the building is finally there. It goes away and the building remains. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, you know that even it points to something greater that's coming. That that would tie it all together. The Old Testament, on its own terms, never was an end in itself. Everything in it was preparing a way for something greater and final. Even Moses, whom you'll see in Hebrews, the Jews revered so highly, said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And three verses later, the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Both Peter in Acts chapter 3 and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 said that Jesus is the one that Moses was talking about right there. Jesus is the one, was the prophet that came that we're supposed to listen to. He came with the words of God. He was God. That's, that's the second point we're going to see this morning. But that's exactly the point that the author of Hebrews is making here in these opening words. Even though God spoke at many times and in many ways in the Old Testament through prophets, through dreams, through visions, through donkeys, through whatever, verse 2 says, in these last days, He has spoken to us, by His Son. That right there shows you, for one thing, that we are already in the last days, in these last days. We're in the last days. Don't think of the last days as just that brief period of time right before Jesus comes back. The last days, according to Scripture, is the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, since the resurrection of Christ, we've been in the last days until He comes again. And in these last days, for the whole period of time, from the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, from the time He left to the time He's coming back, God has spoken to us by His Son. He is the final, the full, the complete Word. That's the clear point of this verse. Whereas in the Old Testament, God spoke in many, at many times and in many ways. 
God has spoken now in one final way through His Son. He says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. I don't want to get nitpicky on you uh, here, but it's not totally insignificant. Let's get grammatical. The, the word translated there, has spoken, is tetelestai. Or not, that's, it, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, is in the perfect tense. Has spoken. The perfect tense means it is a completed action in the past with ongoing implications forever. It's the same tense that Jesus spoke when he said, it is finished, tetelestai, on the cross. It is finished, and it will always be finished. You see what I'm saying? God has now spoken in his Son, and he is not only this way he spoke at this one time in the past, but it is the way he has now spoken forevermore, ongoing in the future. He has spoken one complete and final way. But even the, I don't know if you've noticed this, but even in the structure, he, Hebrews is written beautifully, beautifully in the structure of the verse, verses 1 and 2. The, the, the poetic, almost a poetic way that the author of Hebrews wrote verses 1 and 2 teach us that same truth. Let me try to explain what I mean. Almost every phrase in verse 1 has one that corresponds to it in verse 2. Okay? Try to follow me here. I'll try to explain what I mean. Uh, so it begins with long ago. Verse, that's one. But in, the, in, in verse 2 it says, but in these last days. So that, there's a correspondence. So long ago God did this, but in these last days he did this. Or, or God spoke to the fathers. Well, now he has spoken to us. Instead of the Father, he's spoken to us. Verse 1, he spoke by the prophets. Verse 2, spoken by his son. In verse 1, he spoke at different times and in different ways. There's nothing that corresponds to that in verse 2. Because when he spoke to us by his son, there's a period. Right? Technically. Uh, there's not a period. But <laughs> in your mind there is. In God's mind there is. That's a long sentence right there. Uh, lots of comments. Um, but in God's mind it is. Long ago, in these days... God spoke to our fathers, God spoke to us, spoke by the prophets, spoke to his son, used to speak in different times, many ways, now nothing. Now nothing. He's spoken to us by his son. Where you expect to find something new to correspond to different times in many ways, there's nothing there. Everything stops with the revelation of the son. God has now spoken to us by his son, and that's his final and complete word. God has given his final word through Jesus. And that means at least a couple of things before we move on to the next point. One, as Peter said in Acts 4.12, salvation isn't found anywhere else. Because God has spoken, and he said one thing, listen to my son. He's told us that salvation is in Christ alone. So salvation is nowhere else but in the son. It's as John would say, 1 John, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. But the other thing that Jesus being the final and complete word of God tells us is that Scripture is where you go to find God's word. 
Scripture is where you go to find God's Word. Because... The Old Testament foreshadowed Jesus. The Gospels revealed Jesus. The rest of the New Testament explained Jesus. It's all centered on Jesus. And what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, this word, all scriptures breathed out by God, and now it, it can lead you to salvation and equip you for every good work. When you want to know, and if you went to venture this past February, you remember this, but when you want to know God's will, when you want to know or hear His Word for your situation, pray, yes, but don't look for a, a cloud formation in the sky. Don't, don't. God can make a cloud formation in the sky. God can speak to you audibly if He wanted to, uh, to give you His will. But if He doesn't put a... A cloud formation in the sky, if he doesn't speak to you audibly, it's not because he hasn't spoken. He's already spoken. And he's even written it down for you. When you want to know God's will or hear his word in your situation, open the scriptures. There isn't a situation in your life now or in the future where that there isn't already sufficient wisdom for in his word to make every decision you'll ever have to make in any situation. But there's another truth that the author of Hebrews hammers home in these verses. And that isn't just what Jesus is, namely the final and complete Word of God, but also who Jesus is. God Himself, who has earned our salvation. The deity of Christ is an unmistakable theme of these opening words and really the whole chapter. These opening verses don't only show us the superiority of what Jesus has done, I mean, the whole book is going to be about the superiority of what Jesus has done. Moses was a prophet. Jesus is a better prophet. Uh, the sacrifices served their time. Jesus is a better sacrifice. The temple served at time. Jesus is a better temple. I mean, the, the whole book is about what Jesus did is better than what was done in the Old Covenant. But these opening verses don't just show us the superiority of what He's done, but, but, but really... His ability to do those things and they be better because of who He is. The book is going to spend, like I said, a greater time showing that Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses, how His sacrifice for our sins is better than the old sacrifices and the temple and so forth, but it doesn't start there. It starts by showing that Jesus did all those things better because Jesus Himself is greater. And for that reason, all that he did was greater and fulfilled all that came before in the Old Testament. In the same breath that he is saying that Jesus is the final word and revelation of God, he says about Jesus that he is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. That means he is Lord over all that he is. It's the same thing that Jesus told his own disciples after the resurrection from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the heir of all things. The heir of all things, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Whom else can you say that about but God? Only God. It's true only of God. And he says about Jesus at the end of verse 2 that it was through him that he created the world. Genesis 1.1 teaches us that creation is something belonging to and done by God alone. And the author of Hebrews, just like John at the beginning of his gospel, says that Jesus created all that is. 
Jesus does what only God can do. And that's why in verse 3 it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Greek word translated exact imprint is the Greek word character. Character. He is the exact character of God Himself. The, the only one who could perfectly represent the character of God Himself is God Himself. We are made in the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. But even Adam, prior to the fall, was capable of falling. So even prior to sin, not even Adam was the, was the exact imprint of the nature of God. And certainly not we who have a marred image of God. And though we have, we have a conscience that, that guides us to reflect the character of God, we violate that conscience all the time and go the other way. But Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the image of God, the perfect image of God, the very character of God Himself. And not only does, does Jesus, according to verse 3, is He the exact imprint, but He upholds the universe by the word of His power, which is something, again, that only God can do. Jesus can do it because He is God. And what does it say that, it, that He did as God? Verse 3 said He made purification for sins. He made purification so completely that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's going to be an idea that is fleshed out thoroughly in later chapters. But it's worth, at this point, noting the significance of making the point that the one who earned our salvation was God himself. Only God could do it. Only God could bear the weight of our sins. This, this is not a... If you've grown up in church, this is just the gospel. This is not a new truth, but don't go to a church where you hear new truth all the time. The church is meant to be the place where you hear the old truths over and over again. Right? Only God could bear the weight of our sins. The consequences of our sins are, are appropriate to the one that we sin against. God is an infinite God. He's God eternal, God infinite in holiness and infinite in all His attributes. And so our sins deserve an infinite consequence because it's against Him that we have sinned. Hence, the penalty of our sins is an eternity separated from God in hell. We know that intuitively. Like it, that, that, the, the image of that truth God has filtered into the world that He made. We know that intuitively. So, for example, the consequences of sin is different depending on whom you sin against. If I should threaten another person, there might be some consequences to that. But if I should threaten the President of the United States, there are greater consequences to that because of who he is and the office that he has. whole other set of consequences because of who he is. Well, sinning against an infinite God brings with it an infinite consequence. Because Jesus Christ is God Himself in human flesh, He could bear in a moment what it would take any of us an eternity to pay. 
an eternity separated from God in hell, would, would be a just consequence for my sin against an infinitely holy God. And think about this too. Because that's the appropriate response, if I should go to my grave in rebellion against God, if the appropriate response is an eternity in hell to pay the consequence for my sin, I could never reach the point in eternity where I have fully and finally paid for my sins. That's the whole fatal flaw of the idea of purgatory. It assumes you could suffer long enough to be purged, purgatory. It assumes you could suffer long enough to be purged from the guilt of your sins. But that underestimates both the holiness of God and the guiltiness of your sin. But because Jesus our Savior is God Himself, He alone could and did earn purification for our sins. And to prove His work was done, He not only rose from the dead, when He ascended, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's going to be fleshed out in later chapters too when compared to the Old Testament priests and sacrifices. The whole point of these early verses is to set the stage for what is to come. It is to make two points that will be elaborated on over and over again. That Jesus is God himself in human flesh. And he has accomplished the salvation the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. He is the final word and revelation from God. And to turn away from him is to turn away from God himself and lose all hope of salvation. Jesus is simply better. Let's pray.